Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this new day, your steadfast love, your mercies new this morning. Break afresh into our lives by your Spirit and open us to your word and your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. For many people in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, when they talk about God and a God of judgment or a God of vengeance, it kind of makes sense. But when they talk about a God of love, they've got to grapple with that. But we in North America or Western Europe, when we think about a God of love, we say, kind of makes sense. But a God of judgment, of wrath, we've got to kind of grapple with that one. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. The love of God is a difficult doctrine, as someone has written about. How do you match the love of God with suffering. Maybe someone in your family this month got cancer, or your son was bullied at school, or you were harassed at the workplace. How do you square the love of God with that? How do you square the love of God with the freneticness of Advent, Christmas shopping, parties? If you're a college student of finals, end-of-year reports in business or looking at the budget for next year, how does that all factor in to the love of God? The psalm says, the Lord is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. It's a particular type of love, not the elective love, not the intra-Trinitarian love, but the hesed love, the devoted, tenacious unrelenting love of Yahweh for his covenant people. And it's the nerve center, it's the pulsating heart of this psalm. Martin Luther described the psalms as a little Bible, a snapshot, if you will, of the Old Testament. The psalms pivot back to the law and the prophets, where the covenant was given and broken. But as wisdom literature, it pivots forward to the covenant that is renewed, where there's hope. And in the Psalms themselves, as wisdom literature, give a preview for everything that's to happen, a preview of suffering in the Psalms, we find it later in Job, or a preview of wisdom as we find it in Proverbs, or a preview of existential angst and agony as we find in Ecclesiastes, or a preview of Davidic kingship as we find it in Ruth or a preview of hope, as in Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Psalm 103 is a public dialogue, a modern-day monarchic tweet, a way of the king rallying himself and rallying the people to Yahweh, to his Hesed covenant love. And in this particular psalm, we find it located in the fourth of five books of Psalms. 
strategically located to anchor the people themselves in their identity, not in their current political context, not in the Davidic dynasty, but something more primal, something more fundamental. It goes back to the Hesed love of Yahweh. And so the question I have for you this morning is how does the Hesed, how does the covenant, the unrelenting and abounding great love of God, how does that become real to you? And what's its impact? So if you have a Bible, do open it, Psalm 103, and let's take a look together at what King David has to teach us and to tell us about the Hesed love of God. First, the first reality or impact is very personal, verses 1 to 5. It's an individual aspect of this. Then secondly, he goes to the historical, verse 7 to 12, and he broadens it out to a universal sense, verse 13 to 18. So he talks more broadly and concludes with verse 19 to 22. So that's our roadmap for this morning. First of all, the personal, the intensely intimate. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Do not forget his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. For David, it was intensely personal. His sins were forgiven. He was redeemed from the pit and he was, his desires were satisfied. It was the African Christian, Augustine, who noticed in this passage that for David and for any to come to Yahweh's presence to magnify him, they must first not be blind to their own sin. If they were blind to their own sin, the benefits of God would be invisible to them. And so to have integrity, David must not cherish sin in his own heart in order to see the benefits of God. It was a problem later, King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32. He was on his deathbed facing a terminal illness. He cried out to Yahweh. Yahweh healed him. And then he forgot. He forgot the benefit of God. His heart, we are told, became proud. So for David... He must see his own sin to see the benefits, to be able to publicly, to have integrity like that. But Augustine also suggests something more interesting. Not only is there this audible voice, this public acclamation with the people of Israel, but also there is this inaudible voice, this unseen movement of his heart, of his soul, that operates not only when he's awake, but also when he's asleep, when he's in an unconscious state, that he is magnifying Yahweh at all moments of his existence. The love of God will never be real to you. It will never have an impact if you forget his benefits. Perhaps you've reached a stage in your life, in your education, or your career, or your retirement, or your relationships, and one way or another, you've told yourself, I've arrived. I'm here. Look at me. 
And the word of God no longer causes a trembling, as in Amos 1-2. And the love of God no longer captivates and delights and energizes you, as in Revelation 2-4. And the name of God doesn't solicit this reverent awe and adoration, as in Malachi 4-2. It can happen quite unnoticeably. But for David, it was deeply personal. He was a murderer, he was an adulterer, he was a liar, he was a cheat, and he knew personally what it meant, the hesed love breaking into him, recognizing his need for forgiveness. But not only does he forgive all your sins, he says he redeems your life from the pit so that your life is crowned with love and compassion. And David, a warrior, a king, he knew court politics. He knew enemies on the field. He knew what it was like to face death in the face, the pit. He'd been there, and he'd seen Yahweh redeem him from that occasion and crown him, not simply with a monarchic regalness, if you will, but the nuance here is more of protection and rescue. But he crowns him with love and compassion. His Hesed love redeems. It, it's something that came close to me a few months ago when I was traveling with one of your, our elders to Central Asia. As you know, the Islamic world is a major priority for us in missions at Park Street Church, along with our priorities in unreached people groups and Bible translation. And I had the unique privilege to sit down with some leaders of the Christian church in this one particular country. It was late at night in a cafe, and a country where Christians are a minority. They're harassed, sometimes they're persecuted, thrown in prison, but it's a dictatorship. And one of the leaders told me how she had been in a pit. Married off at 18, according to the custom of that country. Married to a law student, age 21. A very smart man, ambitious. And so his young wife moved in and washed and cooked and cleaned for him, but also for his parents and for his 15 brothers and sisters. They have large families in that country. Well, he did well in his profession and sort of upscaled his lifestyle. He started to enjoy parties and drinking and gambling and playing around with other women. Well, she resolved to keep the peace of the home she decided to be quiet. But as a devoted Muslim, five times a day, she would cry out, God, why am I alive? What's my purpose in life? Well, she decided that she had to escape. And so with her two young children, she jumped out of the window of her house onto the city street and ran as fast as she could, a great distance to her parents' house. And she arrived on the doorstep, begging and crying out for help, for protection. Her father met her astride the threshold and said to her, you've brought shame on our family. I refuse to help you to give you money or anything, and slammed the door in her face. With her two children, she wandered across the street. There was a field, 
a cornfield, she sat down and contemplated her next move. She was in a pit. She wrestled with suicide. And then she thought, how could she, I mean, with her children, how, how could she go there? And then an even darker thought came to her. Perhaps, perhaps she, could, she could take the life of her children and then commit suicide. At that moment, she cried out to God. And God answered her. He said, do not kill your children. I will help you raise your children for the glory of God. The next day, she went back to her parents' house. Her father had gone to work. Her mother was there, helped her. And eventually, she found a job working as a house helper in her city. And she was working for a family, a foreign family. As it happened, they were a Christian family. And while she was working, many times the wife didn't know much of the local language, but she knew enough to come up to her, would hold her, hug her, and she'd whisper in her ear, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. It was so strange for her. She couldn't understand, why would God love me? I brought shame on my family. I'm an unworthy wife, an unworthy daughter, an unworthy mother. And how, how could God listen to the prayers of those who eat pork, of those who are unclean? It didn't make sense. Over the next few months, she had the opportunity through that household to read the scriptures and came to a point where she personally experienced the Redeemer pulling her out of her pit. And today, she's crowned with a dignity as a leader in the church in that country. It's deeply personal. David knew it. It's how the love of God becomes real. But also, David says, he satisfies you, your desires, with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The eagles have many feathers. They tend to get clumped on their chest. Not that I know anything about eagles. <laughs> but the National Eagle Center website is very interesting. <laughs> it even has live webcams to look at nests across the country. <laughs> the old feathers are gradually replaced by a natural process of molting. And as the new feathers come in, the eagle is rejuvenated. It's revitalized to the extent that they can continue to live for 20 or even 30 years. And David had personal experience of this renewal. What Isaiah talks about, those who hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. Or the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, though outwardly we're wearing away, we're, we're, we're wearing down, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. However, experience can contradict that. We can feel depleted, discouraged, exhausted. Maybe it's running the kids between taekwondo and piano practice and Christmas plays. Maybe it's 
a difficult relationship in the office, or maybe it's taking care of an elderly parent with significant physical needs or emotional needs. And I don't think there's any simple answer or response to this personal renewal. Remember another part of the wisdom literature, Job himself. His faith did not relieve his suffering. It actually increased it. There was a deeper antagonism, a deeper anxiety and anguish in his soul because of his faith. And he was forced to struggle with the nature of faith and the nature of his mortality as a result. Under such circumstances, it's understandable that to understand the love of God, the covenant love of God, that we need something beyond our own experience, something larger. And then David turns to history, the history of the congregation, verses 7 to 12. He says he made his ways known to Moses, his great deeds to the people of Israel. There's no story that surpasses Exodus as an account of human unworthiness, of grace abounding, of benefits that are forgotten. That's what Derek Kidner says anyway. The Exodus, the wilderness, the conquest, they all speak of the covenant love, the abounding love of God. But they also speak historically of the nature of God himself. In verse 8 he says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. It's the autobiographical statement of Yahweh. It's the self-portrait to the nation. It's the national creed that's punctuated throughout the scriptures. And it reveals an aspect of God here in the psalm that's perhaps most prominent in his thinking of love. Because David, if you noticed, omits the phrase from Exodus 34, 6, where Yahweh's iniquity is fed out on the next generation, the children's children. He omits that. Why? Because his focus is on this redeeming, this healing, this forgiving love, this relentless love that refuses to let go of his people. And also signals the nature of this God. There's three different areas that, of God's character that we can surmise from history. Firstly, his complex personality. His love and his anger originate from the same source. His anger here, literally, his uh, nostrils flaring out is, is a sign of, of anger in the, in the Hebrew language. But his, his anger, he's got it under control. He's patient. His anger is something that the Bible is not embarrassed about. It doesn't apologize for because it's not like human anger. It's not raw emotion or a knee-jerk reaction or vengeance or capriciousness. It is his sustained hostility to all that is not true, not holy, not good, because of this intense passion that he has for his people, for his congregation, for his nation. He's a complex personality. Secondly, we learn about the nature of his love and kingship, of leadership, if you will. In 2 Samuel 7, David hears from Yahweh that it is because of his headset love, because of his love, that he wants to give David this dynasty, an internal dynasty that will never end, a dominion that will go on. And he says that his son Solomon, 1 Kings 3, when Solomon recognizes that he's been given the kingship, it's only because of the headset love of God. 
And even when the Davidic dynasty fails and collapses and falls to the ground, the promise is still there, the promise of his love. He said in, in Isaiah 16, 5, the throne will be established in steadfast love. And one who sits in faithfulness in the tent of David will judge and seek after justice and be swift to do righteousness. That under this ruler, this true Davidic king, not only Israel or Moab or Assyria or Babylon or Egypt or any of the nations, any of the peoples of the world will come under his rule, under his justice and under his mercy, to have his protection and his love for all eternity. This is what he has promised based on his love. But not only does he talk about his complex personality, kingship, he also talks about sin. So far has he separated our sin from us, from the east to the west. It's a poetic way to say from sunrise to sunset, an immeasurable distance. It's an old school illustration. You've probably seen it before. But if we imagine we here are under sin, under guilt, under all the different ways the scriptures speak of sin, not only missing the mark, as though the Ten Commandments are there, we shoot an arrow, we miss, but also the distortion, the twisting of the Word of God. King James calls it iniquity. Or the, the breaking of the boundary, the violating of the covenant, the, the parameters that Yahweh has set for what is good and holy and true and just in the community. The old word transgressions epitomizes that. But for all those things that have blocked us so that he cannot hear, we cannot hear him, we're blocked. Our sin weighs us down and as far as the east is from the west, so far has he separated our sins from us and laid them on him, as we know from the New Testament, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes the sin upon himself. He is burdened with that sin. As Deuteronomy 21, 23 tells us, though the man on the, on the tree is under God's curse, he's under the full weight of the justice, of the wrath of Yahweh himself. And where does that leave us? It leaves us open, it leaves us to be reconciled. He's reconciled himself to us. Now we can be reconciled to him. The history of Israel reveals the Hesed love of God. But David goes on, verses 8, verses 12 to 18. He talks about the universal impact of the love of God. He says, as a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has love on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As a man, his life is like the, the flowers of the field. Like a flower, he flourishes. The wind passes over it, and it, it's gone. Its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. It was the French pastor, John Calvin, who noticed that there's a juxtaposition between the utter emptiness and fragility of every man, woman, and child from every race, every tongue, every tribe, this fragile dust 
and the immense, inexhaustible, infinite love and life of God. This universal love for those who fear him. He remembers that we are dust. This came home to me three months ago as I buried my mother. As many of you know, my father passed away a year ago, and my mother une une unexpectedly in August. And Kim and some of our girls were able to go over for her funeral. And I remember as we left the church in the village, we drove through past the elementary school where my, I and my sisters had gone, and the cricket pitch where we learned to play cricket. It was a little cemetery tucked away by a field, a quiet spot. And there were tombstones, some stretching back a few hundred years, but a neatly prepared fresh grave. We trudged through the mud, and each of us were given a handful of dirt. And as the priest said the prayer, we put the mud, put the dirt on my mother's coffin, and she was lowered on top of my father. And I remember the words, he remembers that we are dust. Our life is short, but his love is from everlasting to everlasting. Someone said that his love cannot increase in heaven. That the moment you first believed, the moment you turned from your sin and you turned to your Savior, his love for you then is at the same level of intensity, it's the same level of commitment and sacrifice. It can never decrease or increase in this life or in the next. And his love, it's not academic. It's not philosophical. It's not abstract. It's deeply personal, reciprocal. It's relational. It's transformative. The steadfast love of God never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Well, David concludes the psalm, verses 19 to 22, with this reflection on how do we make the love of God real? And what is the ultimate impact of this covenant love? And the answer, quite simply, is worship. Worth-ship. Ascribing worth to what has worth. Ascribing value to what has true value. Perhaps this is your first day at Park Street Church. Or maybe you've started coming along and you're figuring things out. You've got questions, you're wrestling with issues, but worship, maybe that's not your thing. You say, well, worship, that's for other people. I'm not really, that's not really where I go. Well, let me ask you a question. Why? <laughs> Why not? If you remember David Foster Wallace, the American author, in his college address, said everybody worships something. If you worship money, you'll never have enough. If you worship your body, beauty, or sex, you'll always feel, you'll always feel ugly. If you worship power, you'll be tempted to be afraid. If you worship your intelligence or how smart you are, you'll be frightened about finding out someone else is in the room 
someone who's smarter than you are, what are you worshiping? What are you sacrificing for? What are you giving your life to? What is of ultimate value and ultimate endurance in your life? David says, his throne is established in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels. Praise the Lord, his mighty ones who do his bidding, who keep his word. Praise the Lord, his heavenly host. Praise the Lord, his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everything in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Nothing less than all creation can possibly magnify the love of God, of all the angels, of all the archangels, of all the kings, of all the queens, of all the tribes, of all the tongues, of all the nations, of all the creatures, of all history, in all places, can possibly acclaim, adore, submit to this God of love. C.S. Lewis said that even our best efforts at liturgy, our best efforts at worship pale in comparison, pale into comparison with all creation bowing down to this loving God. And that's our hope. Our hope, as at, at, at Advent, we are hoping and waiting for the man from heaven to get down from his throne and to come to earth not as a baby, but as a king. Not as a carpenter, but as a judge. The one who will right every wrong, who will heal every disease, wipe every tear away, replace shame with honor. This is the one we are waiting for. For him we are anticipating his rule publicly, eternally, visibly on earth. He'll come to a world that is divided, confused, contorted, and in conflict. And yet he comes to rule the nations with his rod of iron, full of mercy and justice and peace. This, this is an overture for that symphony. This is the hors d'oeuvres for the banquet that is to come. Let us pray. Teach us to praise you, Lord, as David did, not only audibly, but with our soul and with our heart, and create in us clean hearts that we may magnify your name and your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives, in our families, in our businesses, in our schools, in our laboratories, in our streets. May your kingdom come, and may you have the glory, and may the earth be covered with the knowledge of you as the waters cover the sea, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.